0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We often lament on this show that we just don't have enough time to get through all the things we'd like to talk about, but today offers us a rare opportunity to do just that, in that We are going to be substituting for The Analyst and his program, Keeping Track, which normally alternates with Todd Urick's hometown atrocities. Well, The Analyst was not available today, so we are going to sit in and give you, in essence, an extended version of Radio Parallax. Of course, uh, at 6 o'clock, normally we cease our public affairs programming and go over to music, so we're going to try and devote uh, quite a bit of what will in essence be hours two and three today, to music. We will in fact be devoting a great deal of time and energy to our memorial today, to a man we've admired uh, over the years a great deal, the legendary James Brown. Wow! Well, the hardest working man in show business uh, unfortunately passed away on Christmas Day. And in the last week, we've also had another momentous obituary in... The loss of Gerald Ford, America's 38th president. Gerald Ford, just last month, had surpassed Ronald Reagan's record as the longest living U.S. president. Reagan was 93 years, 120 days when he died in 2004, whereas Jerry Ford moved past that mark in the middle of last month. For the record, before Reagan, the longevity record was held by John Adams, the nation's second president who died at the age of 90. In one of history's odd quirks, upon passing, John Adams commented that Thomas Jefferson still lives, being that those two men were the last of the original founding fathers. As it would happen, Jefferson had passed away that exact same morning, July 4, 1826, 50 years to the day after the traditional uh, recognized signing date of America's Declaration of Independence. Uh, we'll have a lot to say about Jerry Ford uh, later in our number one. We have to confess that uh, in the last few years, we had entertained briefly the notions of trying to obtain Gerald Ford for this program, as well as James Brown. We were deterred in the first case uh, by the fact that uh, Gerald Ford would be very hard to get to, and we know that in, his, uh, in recent years, he's not been particularly well. James Brown, on the other hand, was a guy we regarded as possibly the toughest interview in show business. Yes, not just... The hardest working man in show business, but probably also the hardest interview in show business. We hope that on Tuesday you caught uh, Terry Gross's valiant effort to uh, to commemorate the passing of the Godfather of Soul. But uh, we got to say that, in spite of Terry Gross's immense talent as an interviewer and that of her staff, which is legendary in public radio, I, I think she met her match with James. He did have a tendency to answer whatever he felt like answering, regardless of what question had been put to him.
1: Why
0: don't we start this program as we like to do with, on this date in history, which in this case is December 28th. On December 28, 1832, citing political differences with President Andrew Jackson and a desire to fill a vacant Senate seat in South Carolina, John C. Calhoun became the first vice president in U.S. history to resign the office. It's kind of interesting to contemplate that Gerald Ford was America's first unelected vice president, and he became our first, in essence, unelected president when Richard Nixon became the first U.S. president to resign the office. On this date in 1941, U.S. Rear Admiral Ben Moreel requests authority to create a contingent of construction units able to build everything from airfields to roads under battlefield conditions. These units would be known as the Seabees for the first letters of Construction Battalion. On this date in 1950, during the Korean conflict, Chinese troops intervened on behalf of communist North Korean forces and crossed the Yalu River to help fight American-led United Nations forces in the South. After Dwight Eisenhower became president, an armistice was, of course, signed regarding the uh, war on the Korean Peninsula, and uh, Korea remains to this day divided between North and South. And on December 28, 1964, the English classic Dr. Zhivago, directed by David Lean and based on the novel by Russian author Boris Pasternak, began filming near Madrid, Spain. The film would win five Academy Awards, including Best Original Score. That of course was Laura's theme from that Academy Award winning score for Dr. Shivago. It uh, did pretty well on the pop charts in the 60s. As for director Lean, if you're not familiar with his work, uh, you may want to investigate uh, seeing some of it by whatever means uh, you choose. But uh, this includes The Bridge on the River Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia, Ryan's Daughter and his final film, A Passage to India. David Lean was one of the great ones. If you are unfamiliar with his work, you should check it out. The River Kwai won the 1957 Academy Award for Best Picture, and Lawrence of Arabia repeated Lean's success five years later in 1962. David Lean's uh, first work as a director was in partnership with Noel Coward on In Which We Serve. We hope to play some selections from Mr. Coward before we're done today. By way of some miscellaneous items, we would note that Peter O'Toole's performance as an eccentric filmmaker in 1980's The Stuntman was loosely based on David Lean, who directed him, of course, in Lawrence of Arabia. Wikipedia notes uh, the following quote from David Lean, I wouldn't take the advice of a lot of so-called critics on how to shoot a close-up of a teapot. And our quote of the week today comes from Japanese Space Agency official Yoshinori Miyazawa on the gastronomic sacrifices made by Japanese astronauts, noting, So far, nobody's been able to make space sushi. I think shelf life may be a problem. We would remind you of another uh, Far Eastern astronaut comment about space food, which we cited two months ago when Kim Sung-soo of the Korea Food Research Institute commenting on the use of kimchi in space. If the Korean astronaut eats our traditional food in space, it will be a great opportunity to show off our nation's culinary culture, specifically the greatness of kimchi. But we did take the editorial stance a couple months back that putting pickled cabbage inside of a spacecraft was probably a poor idea. Since this is the last radio parallax program of 2006 we'd like to do our quote of the year and looking back we have to say our favorite was that of hugo chavez at the united nations who took the podium a day after president bush at which point he made a sign of the cross and declared yesterday the devil came here right here and it smells of sulfur still today In discussing this matter earlier this month while uh, on my trip down to Costa Rica, I must say that uh, my cab driver was laughing pretty uproariously as we were recounting that uh, quote by Mr. Chavez. Our statistic of the week is that 10 million people under age 30 voted in the congressional midterm elections, an increase from 8 million in 2002. Exit polls indicate that 60% of these young voters cast their ballots for Democratic candidates, or was that against Republican candidates? Anyway, uh, we find that this statistics from Reuters are uh, very encouraging. By the way, in 2007, we look very forward to our interview with C.C. Goldwater, the granddaughter of Senator Barry Goldwater, about her excellent documentary, Mr. Conservative. When we stated a moment ago that we think it's a good thing people were voting against Republicans, we do note that the Republican Party of today, George Bush's Republican Party, is one in which uh, Barry Goldwater would probably be regarded as a liberal and Jerry Ford certainly would have a hard time, I think, fitting in uh, with the current crop of uh, Republicans that uh, have been running the country into the ground. Someone else we're going to try and get for you in 2007 will be David Stockman. Uh, Stockman was considered the boy wonder of the early Reagan years and was later uh, chastised when he admitted to reporters that uh, the Reagan economic plan was something of a Trojan horse. Our guest of a couple years back, Peter G. Peterson, who was a member of the Nixon cabinet, uh, said that he thought we could find Stockman pretty easily, so uh, we're going to see if we can track down David Stockman. And our joke of the day, which we're filching from Garrison Keillor's uh, CD, New and Not Bad, Pretty Good Jokes, what do you call a building filled with guitarists? That's right, jail. Jail. And speaking of guitarists at jail, we do want to thank Rolling Stone guitarist Keith Richard for giving us that wonderful headline about him falling out of a coconut tree and giving himself a mild concussion, for which he had to be treated in a New Zealand hospital. We were somewhat tickled by the reporting on that incident, uh, wherein after Keith Richard did injure himself uh, in, in a private island resort in Fiji, Uh, Photographers in New Zealand were staking out the hospital where he was believed to be a patient. (laughs) But they were not able to confirm he was there, but they did get a picture of three guitars being carried in. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, a couple of weeks back, it was a good week for Saparamuriat Niyazov, the ruler of Turkmenistan and the self proclaimed father of all Turkmen, when he opened The World of Turkmenbashi Tales, an 88 acre theme park devoted to his own magnificence. Unfortunately for Niazov. no sooner was this theme park opened in the nation's capital of Ashgabat when he dropped dead. We hope we'll get a chance to discuss a little bit more about the father of all Turkmen later in the broadcast. The magazine noted that last week was kind of a bad week for Freudian slips after Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, during a live TV interview, included Israel in a list of nuclear-armed nations. Note, for 40 years, Israel has refused to admit that it possesses nuclear weapons. In fact, it possesses at least 100, and we would refer you back to our website, radioparallax.com, for our interview we conducted in Israel with Mordecai Venunu, the political activist who served 18 years in Israeli prisons, were telling the world that Israel had nuclear weapons. We're pretty sure that Ehud Olmert is not going to go to jail for his letting the cat out of the bag. And we would note that last week was kind of an ugly week for airport security rules. After Ohio State quarterback Troy Smith was not allowed to take his newly won Heisman Trophy on a plane trip home. The famous bronze statue of a stiff-armed running back had obvious potential for use as a weapon particularly against members of the flight crew playing cornerback or free safety. And from the Only in America file, we have the following, which I saved uh, from my trip to Costa Rica, where it appeared in the Costa Rica Journal. Dateline, Charlotte, North Carolina. A U.S. high school principal was forced to issue an apology after a 90-second excerpt of a Nazi propaganda speech by Joseph Goebbels was played over a stadium loudspeaker before a high school football game. In an apparent misguided attempt at motivation... Forest View High played the Nazi-era speech by Adolf Hitler's propaganda minister on a public address system before a home playoff game against a a rival high school. Explain the principal, Student intent was only to play the on-to-victory clip from the extended speech. Unfortunately, at one time, a good bit of the speech was played on the PA. Now, apparently the coach and the team started using on-to-victory as a slogan because they had a German exchange student on the team. He taught the students to say it in German. Some of the more zealous students, said the principal, sought to capture this slogan in German and to play it on the PA. School officials said two players downloaded the speech off the Internet and that no adult heard the audio clip before it was played over the loudspeaker. Internet. Great tool if properly used. All right, here's an item from the miscellaneous file according to the Chicago Sun-Times. On the average weekday, 71 million American adults use email. This is nine times the number sending or receiving personal mail through the U.S. Postal Service. And we here on this program depend upon your emails. Uh, We would encourage you to send us your comments to info at radioparallax.com we would like to thank uh, Dr. Gary Aguilar, who sent us a uh, really a heads-up about an article on Common Dreams. Uh, we recommend highly CommonDreams.org. This in particular was an article by Norman Solomon titled, The New Media Offensive for the Iraq War. We'll talk about that in our, in our next segment. And let's close with some, uh, some good news items. We've been saving this article uh, from the Sacramento Bee since November 17th. The Bee reprinted an article by Nicholas Wade in the New York Times noting that uh, a new compound, which has been uh, isolated from red wine called resveratrol, uh, enables laboratory mice to run on a treadmill quite a bit longer before they get exhausted. This compound had already been shown to reverse the effects of obesity in mice and uh, make them live longer, and now it's been shown to increase their endurance as well. At the moment, uh, yours truly is finishing The Omnivore's uh, Dilemma by Michael Pollan, a a guest we hope very much to bring to you in 2007. And uh, it talked in there about some of these minor compounds that we are still discovering in various foodstuffs that uh, appear to be more important than we have ever known. Resveratrol would be just uh, an example of just such a compound. Since we have some extra time on today's program, we're going to look at this issue of food, its safety, and what we ought to be eating uh, a little bit later. Stay tuned for that. We have uh, talked about this in the past with uh, one of our regulars, Dr. Whitney Lehman, and and, and Dr. Lehman will hopefully return shortly to take up where we left off in our conversation and with some updates about uh, some recent problems with E. coli and California spinach. And in a fascinating science story from the UK, it appears that uh, research indicates that it may be possible to diagnose depression in people by using a simple taste test. This will help a psychiatrist prescribe appropriate medications. It appears that depression sharply reduces people's sensitivity to certain tastes. Study author Jan Melichar explained to the BBC that uh, when volunteers were given two types of antidepressant, one increased levels of serotonin in the brain, which made people more sensitive to sweet tastes. The other flooded the brain with extra noradrenaline, or in America, norepinephrine. Uh, People who took that improved their ability to detect sour flavors. So this uh, research suggests that if you test people uh, to their sensitivity to sweet and sour flavors... This may enable a more precise use of antidepressants. The uh, study's author told the BBC that uh, as it stands now, psychiatrists prescribe the right antidepressant drug only about 60 to 80% of the time. And with a taste test, it was suggested we may be able to get it right the first time. Personally, uh, here at Radio Parallax, we think that antidepressants are probably being prescribed a bit too freely as a general rule. But anything that enables a uh, treatment to be more precise, we applaud. Uh, in our final, uh, final item for our first segment today, we note that it appears that Senator Tim Johnson, Democrat of South Dakota, uh, is evidently, reportedly recovering from his stroke. Yay. And no, as far as we know, no polonium has been discovered anywhere in Senator Johnson's uh, vicinity. I'd like to note our favorite blo- uh, comedic blogger uh, Tom Burke's comment on this. Tom's uh, headline from his site, Opinions You Should Have, notes, Senator Bill Frist declares South Dakota Senator dead. In what some call the desperate gambit to retain Republican control of the Senate, Majority Leader Bill Frist announced today that he had examined a videotape and pronounced recovering (laughs) Senator Tim Johnson dead. Uh, Senator Dr. Frist, who, of course, is a heart surgeon, first made headlines a couple years back when he diagnosed Terry Schiavo by viewing videotapes of her. A spokesman for Senator Frist explained that his diagnosis was made in the great Republican tradition of seeing the world as one wants to see it as opposed to how it actually is. That's how you affect change in the world. From the force of sheer will, said the spokesman, who then ate a bologna sandwich that he claimed was filet mignon. Oh, and one final addendum. uh, A piece of advice about unconscious politicians. The Week magazine noted a few weeks back that whenever possible, don't. Leave your premier in the car. Evidently, Turkish Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan's bodyguards accidentally locked him, unconscious, in his armored car. Low on blood sugar from the Ramadan fast, Erdogan had fainted and his bodyguards rushed him to the hospital. When they arrived, they jumped out of the armored car and slammed the doors, leaving the key and the unconscious Erdogan inside. His guards then had to appeal to a nearby construction team for sledgehammers. Even so, it took 10 minutes to break through the glass. Erdogan fully recovered, but his security team was getting a pounding in the Turkish press. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett, and you're listening to Radio Parallax. We're back, and let's do some science topics here, starting with the fact that uh, here in America, uh, Allergan of Irvine and uh, Mentor of Santa Barbara, two uh, California companies, are going to again start producing silicone implants. 14 years after silicone breast implants were banned amid fears that they triggered connective tissue diseases and other problems, The Food and Drug Administration has now given approval for their being remarketed here in the United States. They are considered to look and feel more naturally than do the saline implants currently in use. New Scientist magazine quoted uh, Leroy Young. Dr. Young is a plastic surgeon from St. Louis. He noted that uh, this is long overdue and that the science shows the issues behind the ban are not a problem. This is, however, a qualified approval. Each of these two firms must follow 40,000 women with implants for 10 years, looking for potential complications ranging from suicide to cancer to effects on breastfeeding and the women's children. They must also track every implant sold, conduct lab studies of implants that rupture, and decide how to label them to better communicate any risks. And although we're, we're sure you would agree that uh, spraying chicken carcasses with viruses might sound crazy, but uh, if the viruses are harmless to humans but lethal to food poisoning bacteria, it could be a way of making food safer. Research done in the UK by SupaSalvac, the European consortium developing the technology, it's been noted that spray is containing a type of phage. That's a virus that only infects and kills certain strains of bacteria. Uh, resulted in, well, after they sprayed 300 chicken carcasses. Uh, the team investigating this noted that uh, salmonella contamination was reduced a thousandfold compared to traditional treatments. The, uh, the old Soviet Union uh, did a lot of this kind of work and uh, apparently uh, with some success. I think that in the future we're going to see a lot more use of uh, viruses to combat bacteria. The science uh, seems pretty sound. We should note that it isn't uh, just the U.K. that's going ahead with this. Uh, The U.S. Food and Drug Administration last August approved a cocktail of six viruses as a food additive to be sprayed on ready-to-eat meats. Let's catch up on some other science stories here. Uh, There was a great deal of talk uh, last year about uh, what was thought to be hobbits, small uh, primitive human beings, uh, fossils of which were located on the Indonesian island of Flores. Uh, On further inspection, the science now seems to be indicating that these were simply uh, adult dwarf individuals and not a new species of uh, of primitive humans. And then another story where uh, science meets politics. Several months back, a 227-page federal plan for contending with a possible flu pandemic envisioned social and economic chaos while placing much of the burden to contend with the disaster on local officials. We hope in 2007 uh, they will get their act together and plan a national response to what we're going to do if, uh, if there's another outbreak of uh, human-to-human transmissible bird flu. Recent estimates show that this uh, could kill 80 million or more people across the globe. In fact, some say even you know, possibly much more than that. In 1918, the estimates are 50 million worldwide. That was uh, long before anybody could travel continent to continent on a jet aircraft. We note that uh, yesterday's uh, headlines include the news that uh, bird flu appears to be spreading in Egypt uh, with a tenth person dying yesterday. It's been noted that there are 18 human cases of bird flu in Egypt that have been confirmed, uh, but Egypt does lie on a migratory route for wild birds. And of course, as a reminder, humans are capable of picking up bird flu on occasion. It's that uh, human flu spread easily from person to person that's the concern. it seems a certainty that at some point uh, bird flu and human flu are going to swap genes and then batten down the hatches. The 10th uh, the bird flu case that was reported in Egypt uh, represented the third member of an extended family to die of the deadly strain of H5N1 bird flu. It is presumed that all family members contracted uh, this virus from birds, and we certainly hope so. One uh, very uh, curious mystery of deep space that may be resolved in the next year or two is the fact that uh, NASA's Pioneer 10 and 11 space probes launched back in the 1970s have showed very slight anomalies in their position out near the edge of the solar system. It's curious that both these spacecraft are on opposite ends of the solar system, having gone off in different directions, and yet they both have shown this anomaly. And since then, people at JPL and elsewhere in NASA have noted that other space probes have exhibited unexplained changes in speed, most recently with the Galileo and NEAR spacecraft as well as the European Space Agency's Rosetta spacecraft, which flew past the Earth and all showed bigger than expected boosts in speed. The big question is, does this represent something wrong with our understanding of modern physics? Some think so and believe that uh, these spacecraft are going to require a modified law of gravity. Not everyone is convinced, however, Uh, noted Miles Standish, who calculates trajectories of solar system bodies for Jet Propulsion Laboratory. This is like a farmer in Louisiana seeing a light in the sky and immediately screaming UFO, whereas it could be a number of other things. And uh, Pioneer 10 and 11, back in the 1970s, were followed by Voyagers 1 and 2. Both those spacecraft are getting out near the heliopause between uh, where, basically the edge of the very, very edge of our solar system and interstellar space. Sometime in 2007, we're going to come back and talk about that story. To, uh, to produce this show each week, we try and read an awful lot of material, things like the Utney Reader, Mother Jones, The Economist. Uh, we certainly rely on the web. The the reported demise of the modern newspaper seems to be premature. We're not sure how we could get by without reading the Sacramento Bee and occasionally the San Francisco Chronicle uh, every week. Uh, not to mention, of course, the Sacramento News and Review, but... Uh, was quite pleased to take a look at The Economist. At the end of the year, they had a special holiday double issue where I think a lot of the uh, feature articles they've been sort of saving up, they publish. And uh, one of the most excellent things I've read in The Economist in quite a while, or any science magazine for that matter, was their article about meteorites. The article explains how using radioactive dating, we can, uh, we can date meteorites back to 4.56 billion years ago, at which point our star was lighting up with fusion energy. But fascinatingly, uh, you can go back with the dust grains that are parts of these these meteorites and and realize that these predate our solar system. Among those particles are diamonds, uh, which are thought to be the products of supernova explosions. Bits of silicon carbide are thought to have come from red giant stars. By examining these minerals, we're able to get various carbon ratios and, uh, and have decided that dozens, if not hundreds, of red giants and supernova seem to have contributed to the primitive solar nebula, which led to the formation of our solar system. One isotope in particular suggests that a supernova did go off just as the solar nebula was forming. In fact, it may have been the shockwave from this exploding star that led to the nebula, which is us, the whole solar system, starting to condense in the first place. Fascinating stuff, and I recommend that you uh, read the article yourself in The Economist. The article in the same uh, issue about the battle for Mongolia's soul. Mongolia, of course, is precariously perched between the two giant nations of Russia and China. Mongolia is the least densely populated nation on Earth. In an effort to retain its independence from those two giants, uh, the Mongolians have uh, put out feelers to Japan and the United States. In fact, the Bush administration has been delighted by Mongolia's support for its military adventurism in Iraq, which include the dispatching of 200 support troops. It was noted that this was the first time Mongolian troops have been stationed in Iraq since Genghis Khan's grandson, Helugu, conquered Baghdad. Article notes that in 2006, the Mongolians poured millions of dollars into celebrating the 800th anniversary of Genghis's unification of the Mongol tribes into a single state, which became, still, the largest empire the world has ever known. I had a chance to visit Mongolia back in 1991 in the last year, literally, of the Soviet Union, and uh, and perhaps in some future program I can talk a bit about that. And not that I necessarily have that much to say. I do want to say that Ulaanbaatar, the capital of Mongolia, is without question the most boring town I have ever been in in my entire life. Earlier this year it was noted in uh, in New Scientist magazine that uh, the DNA analysis of 25,000 people have uh, shown that quite a few, people of Caucasian uh, ancestry, are in fact descendants of the 13th century warlord Genghis Khan. And And yes, it is Genghis, not Genghis Khan. But I do love the quote from accounting professor Tom Robinson of Palmetto Bay, Florida, one of the people who apparently is a descendant of Genghis. He said, quote, I think I do have a certain number of administrative skills, but I haven't done any conquering per se. All right, and at this juncture, I think we need to do some more science, and to help us do that is one of our science correspondents who's not been on the show for a while, but thankfully returns after a long hiatus. Dr. Whitney Lehman. Welcome back, Whitney. Thanks, Doug. Um, I have been reading uh, Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, which has reminded us of previous conversations you and I have had on this program about how we raise... Cattle in this country. Some disturbing conversations we had a couple years back. This has reinforced my idea that uh, things are not right in America, and when it when it comes to raising beef.
1: Uh, no, the factory farm environment is not helpful to anyone—humans, animals. Not a very good way to do things.
0: I would recommend this book to, to anyone, and I'm I'm really sorry to not catch a Mr. Pollen's appearance here at UCd here back on November 29th. I was unfortunately. Uh, in this case, leaving the country. But uh, we hope to get him on in the future and talk about this river of corn, he describes, that uh, leaves Iowa and the American Midwest, uh, which the federal government, through its policies, keeps artificially low in price, which we then use as a cheap feed source, so cheap that no one could possibly buy corn at that price, and we shove it down the guts of our cattle.
1: Yes, I've heard some people say that Cattle to this day are still mostly grass-fed, and they're finished with corn to to make them more marbled and flavorful, more palatable to Americans. But I don't think that's actually true. I think cows are started on corn very quickly after they're taken away from their mothers. Um, They're given hormones and sub-therapeutic doses of antibiotics so that they can reach slaughter weight more quickly, because dollars are the bottom line of factory farming.
0: It's alleged they started on grass, but really it's a corn operation from very early.
1: Uh, that's my understanding of it, yes. Well, I got
0: to tell you, I just was down in Central America where they where they actually feed cattle grass. Imagine that. And I really thought the beef tasted great. It tasted like beef is supposed to taste like. The chicken was unbelievably good, which I think is a reflection I suspect, and to some degree, in the fact they're not being raised on these monster farms.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't, I, I can't really comment on that because I've never tasted grass-fed beef or any other grass-fed animals. But, uh, I mean, I, I've heard certainly that Americans prefer the taste of corn-fed beef, but that's possibly because they've never had grass-fed beef.
0: Well, yeah, according to Pollan's book, the FDA actually so sets up the classification that you're rewarded for having this corn-fed fatty marbled beef that's considered superior.
1: I'm not exactly sure how the USDA um, inspection system works, but they do grade it based on color and fat content, um, you know, the cut of the meat, the look of the meat. And um, I'm not sure really how grass-fed beef compares to corn-fed beef, but I'm just, you know, as, as a wild guess, I would say corn-fed beef is probably, you know, has a more marbled texture. It's fattier, and certainly the cows don't get exercise, they reach slaughter weight in a year with their hormone button and their corn-fed diet. And I'm under the impression that it takes about four years for um, uh, grass-fed beef to reach slaughter weight. So uh, they're more mature. I assume they're more muscular and maybe more tough. A lot of factory-farmed cows don't really ever move around very much on feedlots.
0: Well, I just drove by a feedlot yesterday. And after reading this book, I was reminded and disgusted by this spectacle, Of cattle standing basically ankle deep in their own feces Mm -hmm. on this landscape that's just just a giant mound of cow dung. Yeah, no place to go. It's it's apparently so concentrated they don't even want it for fertilizer. It burns things. It's so much nitrogen.
1: No, that is true, Um, and certainly. The question is what happens when that washes off and gets into surface water supplies or in the case of the um, E. coli 157H7 outbreak um, in, I think it was Salinas Valley, the theory I think is that some wild boars, um, there are feral animals, I guess mostly wild boars in that area that tracked um, feces from a feedlot uh, to uh, the spinach fields. And I don't think they've finished the investigation yet, but I think that's um, that's been... I think the theory so far is how the spinach got contaminated.
0: Well, You've been researching this, I know, and I guess probably the verdict isn't in fully, but it seems to me that one of the great scandals of modern America is that we are just shoving antibiotics down these cattle, partly because they're not supposed to be eating all this grain, and it gives them problems when they're in these crowded feedlots, so what they do is just shovel massive amounts of antibiotic uh, down their throats, which means they're pooping out antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And now, in this in this outbreak with the with the um the spinach did we did we implicate antibiotic resistance in those in those e coli as far as we know or is that still being looked at?
1: No uh, supposedly there is antibiotic resistance in e. coli one five seven h seven and I think it was Michael Pollan maybe who first theorized that since grain is um, you know used as this cattle feed, it has a side effect that supposedly increases the acidity of um, the stomach of ruminants and the idea that I've heard is that um, in this really acidic environment, E. coli 157 um, maybe developed and acclimated, or maybe it was always there at low numbers, but a more acidic environment allowed it to thrive. It produces a very strong toxin, which is how people get sick and in some case die of renal failure. There is a literature paper by Meng Zhao um, and S. Doyle uh, I have the reference that E. coli 157 h 7 and uh, E. coli N 157 M are both antibiotic resistant to several antibiotics.
0: Well, everybody knew. I mean, anyone in medicine, anyone in biology, anyone in bacteriology knows it's only a matter of time.
1: Yeah, the Union of Concerned Scientists has, um, uh, they have information on their website and they have written articles and um, information on the problem of antibiotic resistance, mostly coming from factory farming, uh, cattle farming in particular, because antibiotics are given at sub-therapeutic doses. and A lot of it is supposedly to kill off some of the natural bacterial growth in the systems of the ruminants so that they can absorb food, more nutrients, and reach slaughter weight more quickly, but also, too, because I think living in these close proximities um, on factory farms, chickens, pigs, and cows, they are more likely to... uh, pass infections from one in, one to another, and I'm sure the antibiotics are used for that as well. And so uh, we have massive use of antibiotics. I think Union of Concerned scientists said an estimated 70% of the antibiotics and related drugs produced in this country are used for non-therapeutic purposes, such as accelerating animal growth and compensating for overcrowded and unsanitary conditions on large-scale confinement facilities known as factory farms. This translates to about twenty-five million pounds of antibiotics and related drugs fed every year to livestock for non-therapeutic purposes, almost eight times the amount given to humans to treat disease.
0: Yeah, I think anyone who's in healthcare will be shocked to realize that we're trying to be careful to not generate antibiotic resistance in, in, in people that we treat and, and here here the here American agriculture is just doing it on a gigantic scale.
1: Yeah, um, Howard Lyman, who wrote the book uh, *Mad Cowboy*, who was himself um, a rancher in the past, I, I remember reading in his book that he said he had to change antibiotics about you know once a month or once every couple of months to they stopped doing the job. It's shocking. Quickly, yeah, shocking. It really is.
0: Well, I, in the future, I want to talk more about this as the as the story comes in about uh, this contamination of of the spinach fields when the verdicts in. I, I gotta say, I may not be quite ready to give up beef yet, but I don't want to eat this corn-fed product, this mm-hmm. antibiotic-laced product, this hormone-laced product. I would like to just eat grass-fed beef. Do you have any suggestions how I and others might be able to do that?
1: Um, I would say just go go cold turkey and stop eating meat altogether. <laughs> 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 I've been well, a vegetarian for me twenty-two years, so, um, but I, you know, you can probably try Whole Foods. I assume you can get grass-fed beef somewhere in California. I I think, I think it is produced here, if I remember right, maybe in Owens Valley or something. But um, All right.
0: Well, there, there's, I guess, a homework project for myself. Yeah, I need to bring to, to you, around. the listening audience, data on how we can do this because uh, I'm disgusted about I re- what I read in The Omnivore's Dilemma, yeah. and I think it's time for a change.
1: Yeah. And try some fake meat products there. Um, there are a lot of good ones these days. They don't taste um, as bad as the brewer's yeast um, <laughs> meat substitutes of the 1970s.
0: Well, Dr. Whitney Lima, thank you for coming back on the show. Let's let's hear more about this in 2007.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And maybe we can talk about environmental effects and global warming effects of uh, factory farming and cattle grazing next time.
0: Well, I, I, I do want to do exactly that, so we shall. Great. All right. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll be back after a short break. Green Acres is the place to be. Farm living is the life for me. Land spreading out so far and wide. Keep Manhattan, just give me that countryside. No! We are back in our third and final segment of hour number one, and we're going to do our obituary section, which is where we usually put our look back at people, well, whose passing should be noted. As we mentioned at the top of the hour, we saw this week the passing in the history of the 38th President of the United States, Gerald R. Ford of Michigan. Jerry Ford was unique in the history of the U.S. as being the only man to occupy both the vice presidency and the presidency without being elected to either office. Said uh, his numerous obituaries, rightly, that uh, Ford played an indispensable role in guiding the country's political life back to solid ground after Vice President Spiro Agnew, then President Richard Nixon, had both been forced from office after being exposed as having broken the laws of the land. Back in 1968, in a bit of uh, brilliant politics, Richard Nixon selected the Maryland governor, Spiro Agnew, as his number two man, uh, which many people uh, thought was a form of impeachment insurance. Agnew's record as uh, governor of Maryland was, let's just say, undistinguished, as was his entire career before that. He may have been, in the modern era, the least distinguished man to run on a presidential ticket uh, prior to the advent of the George W. Bush era. So although in 1972 and later in 1973 the Watergate affair was sort of a smoldering scandal in the background, nobody seriously thought about replacing Nixon as long as Agnew was going to be the man to replace him. After Spiro was caught taking bribes from Maryland highway contractors... Despite the fact that he no longer was the governor of Maryland and was now the vice president, he got booted from office in October of 73. With Agnew gone, it came down to Richard Nixon to pick the man who would be the Veep, and he chose, well, actually, his first choice was former Texas governor John Conley, a protege of Nixon's predecessor, Lyndon Johnson. However, John Conley's reputation as uh, an operator, a rather oily one at that from the state of Texas, meant that he was not likely to survive the confirmation process in the Senate. Jerry Ford, to the contrary, would be a slam dunk. Ford had never actively sought the office of president, which which is another thing that makes him rather unique in presidential history. So it was that in October of 1973, Jerry Ford replaced Sparrow Agnew and in August of 1974 replaced Richard Nixon to become our 38th president. Jerry Ford was personally an honest man, although from this correspondent's perspective, uh, I remember Jerry Ford as the last surviving member of the Warren Commission our nation's great whitewash, which was put together in the wake of the John F. Kennedy assassination with the express purpose of not running down all of the leads <laughs> that led away from Lee Harvey Oswald in all kinds of directions. Ford has given a lot of credit for healing the nation's wounds uh, in his uh, two and a half years in the Oval Office. Yours truly spent uh, 10 weeks living in Bethesda, Maryland, just on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., during our bicentennial year with uh, Gerald Ford in the White House. By today's standards, he was remarkably moderate in his political outlook, although it should be noted that his chief of staff, Richard Cheney, later went on to bigger and better things in the Republican Party, and Gerald Ford's secretary of defense was Donald Rumsfeld. His Secretary of State was Henry Kissinger and he appointed a so-called outsider uh, during his uh, term of office to head the Central Intelligence Agency. That man's name was George Herbert Walker Bush. He also went on to some bigger and better things. So in an odd way, although Jerry Ford was a far cry from today's neocons, uh, the current Bush administration has some pretty deep roots uh, back in uh, the Ford presidency. In spite of this correspondent's knowledge of Jerry Ford's complicity in the Warren Commission report cover-up, I wound up uh, working for his campaign in 1976. Here in Davis, I didn't think too much of Jimmy Carter and his born-again Christianity, his Southern coalition. You know, the re- the rise of the Confederacy. So I must say it's with great irony that I look back at uh, the last couple elections to say, well, there's been some sort of jujitsu flip, leaving Jimmy Carter on the liberal side of things, and the current Republican administration, with its roots back in the Ford White House, uh, you know, running, running down to Dixie to put together a, a winning political coalition. Oh, and those Christian fundamentalists that uh, thought so highly of Carter, well. He didn't give them what they wanted, so they switched to the GOP, where they've been ever since. Back in the 70s, people like Trent Lott and Strom Thurmond would have been Democrats. In fact, Strom Thurmond was a Democrat. So it is uh, sort of uh, odd to contemplate how things turn out, and sort of makes you wonder, back in the 1976 election, how how things did not go in the direction that uh, one might have thought they were going to. Said Ron Nesson, Jerry Ford's former press secretary, he was like the guy next door. The imperial presidency of Richard Nixon and Lyndon B. Johnson was passed, and this was like your next-door neighbor had become president. And I think that helped to restore trust and faith in the presidency. Gerald R. Ford, 1913-2006, to America's Longest Living President. Dr. Frank Stanton also passed away this week at age 98. Frank Stanton was a broadcasting pioneer and CBS president for 26 years. Stanton started on his uh, path to CBS from Ohio State University, where he was a psychologist whose studies had led him to devise a scientific method for measuring radio audiences and invent the forerunner of what A.C. Nielsen would one day later use to gather television ratings. During his long association with CBS founder William Paley, the psychologist helped build the company from a modest chain of radio affiliates into a communications empire whose centerpiece became the nation's preeminent TV network. Said 60 Minutes creator Don Hewitt, if broadcasting had a patron saint, it would be Frank Stanton. If CBS is the Tiffany network, Frank Stanton deserves the lion's share of the credit. Frank Stanton made CBS News a priority. In 1971, he was subpoenaed by Congress to produce unaired footage from a controversial CBS News documentary about U.S. military deception about the Vietnam War. Stanton risked jail by refusing. A contempt of Congress motion failed, but only narrowly. In fact, that saga of Dr. Frank Stanton standing up to the U.S. Congress uh, 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 and backing up his reporter's efforts as regarding that special on uh, William Westmoreland and the deceptions of Vietnam is something we need to return to, I think, in 2007. Uh, There's some lessons in that for the press of today. I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to interview Frank Stanton. When I was down at the Frank Stanton studios visiting the people at Marketplace a couple of years back, I made some inquiries. And they said, well, he just wasn't able to do an interview. It's too bad. I I pulled up some tapes of his with the Museum of Television and Radio down in Beverly Hills, and uh, he did have some interesting things to say there on tape. Anyway, we'll try and make a point to return to the subject of Frank Stanton uh, reporting and the First Amendment sometime next year. Our final obituary is that of James Brown. But you know what? We're out of time, so we're going to have to put that into our second hour. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break. I'm back.
1: Of get up off of that thing, and dance chance you feel better, get up off of that thing, try to release that pressure, get up off of that thing.